And as we continue here to worship our Lord through the Word, let us open our Bibles. Let's go to, to the New Testament this time. And we're going to go to Luke 9. The last two times I preached, uh, I preached on Exodus and we were on a mountain. Or on Mount Sinai. The, just talking about how the Lord took them out of Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai. And he ratified his covenant, his partnership with them. He provided along the He did so many things. And we, we went through all that. But we now are going to go into the New Testament. But before that, we're going to set the stage. We're just going to figure out where we are in the story. So let me do that going through three promises that God gives in the Old Testament. One is in, two of them are in Genesis. The other one in 2 Samuel. In Genesis 3.15, we read that God put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And this is the promise. He will strike the offspring, the serpent. He will strike your head and he will strike his heel. So from that point onwards, we are looking for this human that will, that will appear and will do this. The whole story of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is looking who is this, who is this man? Who would this person? Who is going to be this person? Who will do this? Part of redeeming humanity, because from chapter three, Genesis three to eleven, humanity just goes spirals down and it's just so bad. And the Lord doesn't give up on them. He plans to rescue them, to restore them. So He calls Abraham and He tells them in Genesis twelve. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham is chosen. His family will be the means through whom God will redeem the world. He becomes the means. Problem is that they are also fighting and they have that same problem that the humans in Genesis 1, 3, 11 have, which is sin. Moving on in the story, we get to finally, they are free out of, they, they go to Egypt. Abraham's family go into Egypt. They are free from Egypt. They go into the promised land. They get a kingdom. And we had the failed king first, Saul. And then we got the greatest king of all, King David. And then we got Solomon and so on. But with King David, the Lord Gives him a promise because David, he, you know, he wanted to build a house for the Lord. And then the Lord's like, do you, do, like, do you know what you're saying? And like, can there's a house that's going to contain me? Is there's, you can build a, make a building that will contain me. And David's like, well, yeah. And he doesn't get to do it. Actually, Solomon who does it. And there's reasons for that. But then the Lord tells him, you know, let me tell you what. I will build you a house. And by house he means a, a lineage. Descendants. And he tells him in 2 Samuel 7, 12-14. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up after you. Your descendant. Who will come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. And he will be my son. This is the story so far. God is God has 
implemented his developing this plan in which he will rescue and restore humanity. That's that's the plan. Because the Lord wants to partner with humans. He wants to work with them to make creation flourish, to make the world know him through human beings. Prophets keep keep saying, yes, this this one guy will come because... He wasn't coming, wasn't King David, wasn't Solomon, wasn't any of the kings later on. And then they're in Babylon and, and like, oh, so what about those prophecies? Is this guy going to come or not? Prophet says, yes, he will. And finally, when we open the New Testament, we encounter Jesus of Nazareth. Who, according to the apostles, he is the one who fulfills those promises. However... Expectations, right? And at some point we talked about this. Who they were expecting. They were expected to be free from... To be freed from Rome as they were set free from Egypt. They expected someone who set things right. Similar to what happened in Egypt. But And then they get... So they get Jesus. And then his identity was questioned. Because he would do the, it didn't fit the patterns. It didn't fit, fit the mold they were expecting. He was doubted. His identity was distorted. By his family, by his friends, by his disciples, by his opponents, by everyone. And by setting all this up, now we are ready to go into the chapter that we want to to dig in today. Which is Luke chapter 9. So, let us pray. Let us jump in. And see who Jesus is really is. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can study it. Thank you that we can get, we are granted wisdom through it, Father, because you have this planned it and orchestrated that it may be that way. May our hearts be open. May our hearts be humble to listen to your voice, to pause and learn from you who loves us, who has rescued us. And that you want to accomplish your purposes through us, Father. We are not merely spectators. We are participants in your purposes. So again, may your word be the one who reaches our hearts and convinces us of who we are and what are we supposed to do. In your name we pray. Amen. We set the stage... And we go to Luke chapter 9. Kind of going to see like a little bit of an overview of the chapter. And then we're just going to jump in into the verses 28 through 36. In this chapter, if you can see in your Bibles, there's different headings, right? There's the commission of the 12. We're going to skip that part, but we're going to go into Herod's desire to see Jesus. Because Jesus has become already quite known. People know who he is. and Well, people know there's a guy named Jesus. They don't really know who he really is. His identity is like, people say one thing, people say another thing. And in verse 7 and 9, we read that Herod, the Tetrarch, which is different from Herod the Great. Herod the Great is dead, the one who wanted to kill Jesus when he was a baby. This is one of his sons named Herod. He heard about everything that was going on, Jesus about Jesus' ministry. And he was perplexed, confused, because some said that 
John had been raised from the dead. This John is John the Baptist. Some say that it was Elijah that appeared. And others that one of the ancient prophets had risen. And Herod says, I beheaded John, so it can't be John. But who is this I hear such things about? And he wanted to see him. He was curious about who this Jesus of Nazareth was. But not only him. There were many other people who were curious as well. As a matter of fact, this is what he heard the people saying. We know, as we mentioned, that John the Baptist is dead. Herod chopped his head off. That's the way they did things there, then, back then. And the story is somewhere there in Luke. So he's, he cannot be John. But then the opinions, the options that, that the apostles have is like, okay, maybe he's Elijah. That's what some people were saying. That Herod heard that some people were saying. One of the prophets. Now then Jesus, because after this section of Herod, then we have the feeding of the 5,000 men, which were more people, with just five loaves of bread and two fishes. He feeds all of them. And then, so we have these, a lot of people. So of course you're listening. Oh, this guy is this one. No, this guy is not John, but it's Elijah. No, but he might be one of the prophets. So you can just imagine the chattering, right? It's just 5,000 people. So you can hear all sorts of things. And then Jesus asked them in verses 18 through 20. When he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, Jesus asked the disciples, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answer, Well, John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. But others, that one of the ancient prophets, that one of the ancient prophets has come back. So they, they're just repeating what the crowds are saying. And, and, but Jesus wants to, he wants to dig deeper. He wants to know what actually, not to hear the, re, the repeating words of the crowds. He wants to know what the disciples actually are saying. What do they, who do they think he is? So he addresses the disciples and asks him, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And we, we know because probably we read the story before and we know who he is and we've read about it. But that's also a question and let's remember that as readers that question is not only, we're just not reading what happened but that the Bible is also asking us, who do we say that Jesus is? And let's, let's keep that, we're going to put that there in a bit and we're going to come back to it. Peter, being who he is, life of the party, and speaking without thinking, he just blurts out, you're God's Messiah. And he's right. He has correctly answered, he's God's Messiah. But have they, do they really know what that means? I don't think so. And the Bible tells us a little bit more of what Jesus needs to do for them to understand what does it mean to be God's Messiah. Again, there's a lot of things that you, the people were expecting. Oops, sorry, I jumped an extra page. There we go. And then Jesus, in verse 21, warns him and tells him, after Peter's confession, right? It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. 
So this God's Messiah that Peter said, God's Messiah is going to go through this. Being rejected, killed, by the elders, by the chief priests, by everyone. He's going to be raised back. So just think about that for a minute. So here's the guy who's promising. He's kind of like, you know, it makes you think about, maybe this is a pretty, uh, an old movie for some, but Braveheart, the William Wallace movie, right? Imagine that he's, he's the guy who, who, who freed Scotland uh, from the king, or, or opposed the king. He didn't do it. He let Robert the Bruce was the one who actually ended up doing it. Anyway, sorry if my history is a little off. William Wallace just brings all these people, and then he gets them together so they can go fight. Imagine if he suddenly starts telling them, hey, guess what? We, what we're going to do is that I'm going to go suffer and be rejected by everyone and then be killed. And then, then we're going to achieve what we want. No, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't really make sense. How, how is that going to happen? Or just a, the Revolutionary War. Imagine George Washington saying something like that. Yeah, we're going to be defeated by the, by, by the British and that's how we're going to achieve freedom. No, that does not work. It's not like that. That's what the apostles were expecting. So they just in, just want, to, want us to be in the shoes, in their shoes. Because they are suffering and they are dying. They're, Jesus is not the first Jew to be crucified. There were like thousands that have been already been crucified. They were paying horrible taxes. Their land was being taken away. We need someone to set us free. But then there's this guy who's God's Messiah telling us, that the way to do it is not by fighting by, and winning, but by being defeated. Hmm. Then he continues and tells them, Well, not only that, but if you're going to be my followers, what you're supposed to do in verses 23 and 24, if you follow me, you have to deny yourself, which not only means, oh yeah, I'm going to you know, not eat this plate of food and give it to someone else, is that, my visions and expectations of who, I, who am I as an Israelite, as a Jew, no longer take place. They, they're no longer valid. We are not going to exercise violence in order to achieve this. You have to take up your cross and follow me. You have, that's why Jesus speaks in John like being born again, having a clean slate, leaving everything that we think we know. But whoever loses his life, because of me, we'll save it. Even more confusing for the disciples. They don't know. They do say, yes, this is God's Messiah, but isn't him the one who's going to set us free from Rome, like God did with the Egyptians? Doesn't seem like it. Peter was so confused about this, that he even tells Jesus in Matthew, we go to that gospel in Matthew sixteen twenty-two. Oh no, Lord! This will never happen to you. And, you know, famous aunt reply, right? Jesus replies, Get behind me, Satan. I don't think you want to say that to anyone. Or have we ever said that to anyone? Get behind me, Satan. And Satan is just a word for adversary. Peter is not in line with Jesus' purposes or will. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. He is the one who just confessed, declared who Jesus is. But clearly he's mistaken because he doesn't understand that the path he has to take is one of suffering. Jesus has to rebuke him. 
they don't really understood. So when we jump into our text here, which is the transfiguration, this text comes as a, a way to clarify these confusions. Herod doesn't know who Jesus is. The crowds don't know who he is. The disciples, they think they know who he is. What is what's it going to take? Let's jump into, let's read the, those few verses. I'm reading, by the way, in the CSB, which is the white, orange Bibles in front of you. Yep, that, that one. About eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep. And when they became him, as the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters or tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not knowing what he was saying, while he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice from the cloud saying, Then a voice come from the cloud came from the cloud saying, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent, and at that time told no one what they had seen. No questions, right? This is not weird at all. It's very weird. It's very weird, very unusual. So Luke is taking us from the, converse, from the conversations that the disciples had about who Jesus is, who the crowd said he is, and, and even before Herod, the one in the one ruling, who he think he was. Everyone was confused. No one knew, who, no one wasn't sure, no one was very sure or sure enough about Jesus' identity. So what Luke is doing here, then he comes and, and he gives us this story. The Lord gives us this story so we can start clearing out those doubts, those misconceptions, those distortions. When we read that Jesus asked his disciples, who do you think that I am? That question is not only, again, for his disciples. But let's start thinking, who do we think Jesus is? The apostles, you know, and we may say the same thing as the apostles. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And so on and so on. But do we really know? By the end of the narrative, as we read, Luke tells us how we can show, how we can manifest that we actually know him. And we're going to get there. And, and let's start with this verse. We are we're going up on a mountain. And that's the thing. We've been, the other times I, we talked about Exodus, there's been, they were up in a mountain. Mount Sinai. This was very common to go up on a mountain. And in the mountain, having this kind of like, 
vision, revelation, something that they are seeing that they would were not seen before. That was very that was very common, and that's where the burning bush happened on a high mountain. Abraham receives the divine revelation not to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain. The Garden of Eden was on a high mountain. So we learn that it is common for them to go on a mountain. And there's a purpose for them to go there. Let us remember the thing in question is Jesus' identity. No one knows who he really is. So he want to want to know who that is. Jesus wants to tell the disciples who he really is. So we go to the next to the next verse. They were praying, and suddenly the appearance of his face changes. And his clothes become dazzling white. There has been many attempts of explaining to the smallest detail what this meant. To understand how it happened. We're not going to resolve them today. That's not our goal. But what we can do is to see this episode through biblical lenses. The Bible is not the first time that the Bible shows us something like this. There are many instances and before we see one, we want to emphasize that Luke's point, it is not that Jesus, he himself experienced a kind of transformation. Like he was, you know, pretty much, and even the, the word in Greek is metamorphosis. And immediately what we think is a butterfly, right? Like a caterpillar cocoon and then the, the full butterfly. That's not what happened. Jesus didn't become something, someone else. What happened is that for the apostles, Peter, James, and John, something for them was made visible that they couldn't see before. So from their perspective, yes, he is being transformed, but Jesus is not being transformed. What is going on here is like a revealing, an unveiling. So you're taking something off. So at this point, suddenly the, the, the disciples can see more than they could before. Again, this is not new. In 2 Kings 6, 15-17, there we encounter Elisha, the successor of Elijah, who we were talking before. And Jerusalem was, I think actually it was Israel. Yeah, it was Dothan, my bad. Dothan, a city in Israel, was being surrounded by the Aramean army. And then, the servant of the man of God, which is Elisha, got up early and went out and he discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. Imagine tanks and all kinds of military power surrounding your city. And he tells to Elisha, ask Elisha, oh my master, what are we to do? And Elisha said, don't be afraid. For those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. And... It's a little weird because it's just them. Probably the city. The city was not very big. It was not like, you know, 100,000 people city. It probably was just like a few thousands. And they're not warriors. And it's like, what is this guy talking about? And then Elisha prayed. It sounds similar to what Jesus is doing. Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes it's not that something was transforming what they were seeing. The Lord opened his eyes and he saw that the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
So it's something happening to the servant that he suddenly can see. Okay, there, there are, this is the way the Bible explains it. There are analogies in which we can probably relate them to, but this does not mean what it happens. <clears throat> For us, our eyes can capture the spectrum of the visible eyes, I think the colors of the rainbow. When they come together, it's white. But we cannot see certain frequencies. We cannot see certain... What's the word for that? Um, wavelengths. Thank you. We, can, we cannot see those. There's x-rays and there's ultra, infrared and ultraviolet and gamma rays and so on. You, you, we can't. However, we have, made, we have created devices in which we can. You, you, know, you see my hand here, but then you know, want to see what's going on in my hand. If I have any broken bones or anything, we've got the x-rays. And there you go. And we can see that there are you know, a bunch of bones... The carpals and metacarpals and phalanges and the wrist and the TV. Uh, yep, no, TV is a, it's a leg. Radius and the other one. Um, Olna, thank you. And, and we can see that. You know, it's, it's not like the hand is being transformed. My hand is not being transformed. I'm just able to see more than I could. Let's take it to the other end. And when we want to explore space and its deep ends and everything, we created machines. One of them, this is the same nebula, I think it's the, I wrote it down somewhere, the one on Helix Nebula. One of them is with visible light, the one on your right. But then when you use the infrared wavelengths, you see more, which is, you can see heat. We see things that we couldn't see before, or even better. I am not saying this is what happened to the uh, to the apostles. Maybe, maybe not. It's not like they knew about infrared wavelengths and and, and they knew about X rays. It's not like that. But it is not that we are. This is being transformed. Is that suddenly we have the ability to see more? So for the disciples, Jesus is not transformed. He doesn't become something someone else. Is the apostles that can suddenly see more of who Jesus is. That's the transfiguration happening. That's what they are seeing here. Yes, from the apostle perspective, he looks like he's being transformed, but he isn't. He, they just can see more. And they not only see this, but they hear. They hear that Jesus is talking, but he's not talking to them. He's talking to Moses and Elijah. Those guys were dead long ago. But they're somehow alive, you know, because do we worship a God of dead? Of death? No. Worship a God who is alive and brings people to life. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure. So they hear this conversation. And why Moses and Elijah? There are so many other biblical characters that could have come up. But with this, we get Moses and Elijah. That doesn't mean that the other ones were not somewhere or with the Lord. But it's because they're representatives. Moses we represents, he gave, he gave the Israelites the law, the instruction, the first five books. Elijah is associated with the prophets. So together what they do is that their presence, they confirms Jesus' role, his identity, who he is. He's the one fulfilling the law. He is the one announcing 
prophesying God's will. And we can hear here, we can now hear the echoes of Deuteronomy 18.15, that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, says Moses, from among your own brothers. And here's a little hint here of how we can, how do we know who Jesus is? You must listen to him. Jesus is fulfilling these two roles, the prophet role and the giving the law, fulfilling the law role. His mission is to announce what God's will is. And which one, that, what is that? For everyone to be saved, to come to know God. 1 Timothy 2.4 Now the fact that they appeared in glory, is it, it means their status. They are part of the heavenly court. They are not part of, of this physical world. They're part of the, the, the heaven dimension where, Lord, where the Lord resides. And in this conversation, we're talking about their departure. That word is the translation, the English translation of the word exodus. Exodus is just a Greek word with English letters, which means departure. So by telling us this, they, they're talking about this. Why would they need to be talking about Jesus' departure? Yes, he, he just said he was going to go and die. Is that the departure that we are encouraged or they are, we are asking to see? I think there's more than just the fact that Jesus will leave. It is the implication that what Jesus will accomplish, and we are told where, in Jerusalem, is similar but at the same time is even greater than what was accomplished with the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. It is a lot more grandiose. It's just huge what's coming on. Because it's not just being free from human oppression, but it is being free from the power of darkness, from that sin that is in us. How is this achieved? And that's what Jesus himself explains. It's not by bringing in the bombs or tanks, but by surrendering in peace. And this is the paradox we have to wrestle with. This is the tension we have to wrestle with. How do you defeat an enemy? Not with violence. Not by forcing people to follow you, but by giving them the choice to follow you or to reject you. It is through suffering and death that Jesus will be exalted. That's something that it is still difficult to understand. Because our first reaction, our tendency to, for self-preservation is raise up our fists. That's our tendency. That's human nature. Jesus is calling us to go in a different way. Now Peter and, and those were, they, they are seeing all this and they, we see that they are in a deep sleep. And they become fully awake. They saw the glory, and the two of men were standing with him. In many instances, the Old Testament talks about this, about people being in deep sleep. It, it's, it's, it's hard to find language for this. Maybe I'll try to give you an analogy here. Uh, because Abraham is described to be to experience a deep sleep when he sees the Lord walking through the halves of, of animals that he just caught off in Genesis 15. Daniel is said to be experiencing deep sleep when he's receiving a revelation. So you have all these instances. So what, does, what do they really mean? It's, it's, 
It's just an or it's a weighing down feeling. It can be because of bad news. It can be because of good news. A few years ago, many years ago, um, I was here in the United States. I was in I was in D.C. and I'm. I'm above. I'm a. I'm a. I'm a sucker for kind of things, right? And and, and plain tourist. I, I mean, who doesn't like that? And I'm an nerd. I just go to. All, I went to like the, at least seven museums, like in two days or three days. One of those days, because uh, I I needed a visa to come here, I needed a passport to come because I was even still I was still in Honduras. So I was going there, and and like you could run, rent one of those bikes, and I went down and 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 rented one of those bikes, parked it somewhere, went to the museums, and then I was going back to where I was staying. So I had my passport, and I usually put it in my front pocket, safer. But one time I just put it in my back pocket, then I rode my bike. At some point, I kind of like trying to find my passport. It's like it's not there. It's not in my front pocket. It's not in any pockets. Then I. I had to retrace my steps. I went to like the four museums I went that day. No sign of it. That was in September, September 2016. By the end of that year, I was supposed to go to Spain, move to Spain, and I had lost my passport. What am I going to do? So I called the consulate, and then I called the embassy and talked to someone. It's like, hey, um, has anyone reported this or that or the other? I'm like, nope. People usually don't do that. That's what I was told by one person in the consulate, but then I called the embassy. The embassy tells me, like, oh, yeah, we have tons of passports that people turn in all the time, but no one ever calls for them. And so we just have them here, just waiting for people to call. And he's like, the guy tells me, don't worry, yours will come up too. And I was like, right. Sure thing. And, and, that, and then I had to, and then I had other flights in the United States. I couldn't. I couldn't hop in a, in a plane without a passport because I'm, I don't live here. I didn't live here back then. Took a bus from, I was in Virginia all the way to Miami to get a passport because that's the only consulate in the whole United States that gives you the passport in one day. 26 hours. Yes, talking about feeling way down, but that's not where I actually felt deep sleep way down. I was almost at the end of the trip. I was here like for probably three weeks or something like that. And then I had for completely, I got a new passport already and I was able to go back to Honduras at some point, right? Then I, of course I didn't have a phone, but I have given the guy from the embassy my friend's phone. And one day he receives a call. My friend receives a call and tells me, someone called you from some embassy. I'm like, okay. And then I call him back and like, hi, this is Jose. You call this, uh, you, you call my friend. Oh, yeah, I just want to let you know that, you know, someone found your passport and turned it in. And I was like, seriously? Yeah, I told you these things happen. And I, yeah, well, sorry for being a little skeptical. But because what are the odds? And there was my, my, my visa, my permission to come in. You don't get those in the United States. You need to get it from your country and your country of origin. At that moment, I just sat down. My neurons were firing faster than I could process. And I was happily overwhelmed and, and didn't know, like I wanted to meet the person who found it. I wanted to know what had happened, where he, where he or she found it. Why did he or she took the time to take it to the embassy? Like all these kind of questions going on. And I just had to sit down, breathe, 
and and let let my brain and let my feelings and everything process all this that I was living. That's what the Bible is trying to say here with going through a being experiencing a deep sleep is that overwhelming amount of information that you can't fully process yet. At that moment, I remember that. I mean, you just think about any moment that you have felt something like that. And I want to relate it to something good, right? Because it also happens when something when you get bad news as well. But you just feel weighed down. And you feel like you need to take a breath. And you even feel tired. The disciples were in a deep sleep. And then when they were able to grasp in and to take everything in, they became fully awake. And then Peter, oh, we love Peter. Then Peter says, Master, let's build some tents or shelters and so on so we can keep this moment here. Peter is happy. He, he's, he's just overwhelmed with joy. The experience that he's not only seeing Jesus in his, in his being fully revealed, but he's also seen Moses. And like, just imagine seeing your heroes, right? And he's seeing them and he wants to capture that moment. That's what we try to do with our pictures. And pictures really doesn't really capture the majesty of the things we take pictures of. But he wants to do that, and he says, like, let's build some tents. Why? Why tents? Well, let's remember the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place where God's glory could dwell, could be contained, because the Lord made it somehow work. So Peter wants to do this exact same thing. Oh, let's build some shelters, says the CSB, other versions says tents, so they can all live there. But, you know, Peter, chill. How can you contain this? How can you, you know, put Okabina Lake in a, in a water bottle? You can't. You can't contain what cannot be contained. So Now, it's just a natural reaction from Peter to trying to extend that moment. That's why Luke says that you, he really didn't know what he was saying. He really didn't understood everything. At this point, let's go back to that question. Who is Jesus? Because we've seen him. We, are, we can see him more. And not only the disciples, because the point of having this narrative is that we are invited to see him too. Then when he was saying this, Peter, when he was saying that he wants to build tents, a cloud came up, and we have seen clouds before on Mount Sinai, filling the temple and overshadow them. Usually, this cloud is just another way of saying the Lord God, the Creator, is present. And they were overshadowed by the cloud. They entered the cloud. And then a voice came. So, and think about this. So, there's, there's the cloud who symbolizes God's presence. There's a voice that is God. And there is Jesus, who is also God. Not to make your head spin, right? But so the narrative says... And the, and the voice from the cloud says, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Who is Jesus then? This one, the son of God. That's who he is. And he says, listen to him. Now this phrase, we can, we can make like a, I don't know how many hours of, sessions of whatever about that, that phrase listen to him because the Lord is the one in the Old Testament who says listen to me because you have listened to my voice says to Abraham have you listened to my voice then I will bless the nations 
oh, to Adam he says, because you didn't listen to my voice and you listened to someone else, then these things are going to happen. Because, and then the Lord repeats that again and again, you can find that phrase in the Old Testament. But in this case, he's not saying about that, uh, listen to him. He's saying, listen to this one. Listen to Jesus. An interesting thing here is that even though the biblical writers are writing in Greek, they're thinking about the Hebrew concepts. So just, I'm not expecting you to remember this, but the word in Hebrew for listen is Shema. And probably we heard that from the Shema prayer in Deuteronomy 6. Listen to Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. The word is Shema, Shema. That word Shema, it's not only, does not only imply listening, but also obeying. Those are two sides of the same coin. There was no differentiation between them. So when the Lord, when Yahweh is saying, listen to him, he's saying, listen and obey him. And this is how we know who Jesus is. We know who Jesus is not because we can find the meaning and etymological meaning for his name or we can know his background. He's the son of this and son of the other. We know who Jesus is because we obey him. That's how we know who Jesus is. Because we have listened to him and we obey him. After this, the boy had spoken. Jesus was found alone. They kept silent again, processing everything that has just happened, reflecting on it. In other, in the, on the other gospels, the Lord Jesus tells them, "Don't just mention this twenty-one. That's another rabbit hole." But at this point, who is Jesus? As we read before, and and in with Herod, and then Jesus asking his disciples. Which again, he's asking us. The Bible is, we're not only reading the Bible, the Bible is reading us. Who do we say that Jesus is? Is he a friend? Is he a brother? Is he a savior? Is he, is he the Lord or my king? He's the Messiah or the Lamb of God. So many other names. All of those. But if we are confidently affirming, just like Peter did, that he's the, the God, God's Messiah... Are we obeying him? That is the that is the the revealing the, the revealing moment that if we know who Jesus is, then we are listening to him. Then we are obeying him. If not, we just think we know who he is. So as closing here, asking the question. If you have not, this is just your first encounter with Jesus, then what Jesus is saying is, come to him, come to him. Come and believe his word. Come and believe that what he has done saves you from your way of life. If you are a believer, then what Jesus is saying is, if you really know me, how are you obeying him? So think about these two questions. 30 seconds for, for, for both of them. Think about just one thing. One thing that we are doing that reveals that I am not listening to him. Are you being patient? Are you, are you, are you reading the word? Are you spending time in community? Think about that one thing that we are not doing. And now, uh, having that thing in mind... 
for me, it would be, and I'll tell you right here, my prayer life is poor. What would it look like for me? What would it, well, how, my, what, how would my prayer life look like if I am actually listening to Jesus? As simple as praying more. Jesus is calling us to get to see him, not for who we think he is, but for who he, he really is. Let's listen to him. Let's obey him. I want to invite the worship team. No, sorry, not the worship team. I'll pray and I'll invite the, the kiddos who are going to share a verse and our closing song. Okay, let me just quickly pray. Heavenly Father, thank you because you have gone to the great lengths to show us, to reveal yourself to us so we can see you, Father. So that we cannot dwell and, and depend on ideas that we made for ourselves or expectations that, that we build from our misunderstandings or, or our wants. But you have shown us, and it is in Scripture, Father. It is in the Bible that we, can, we are invited to see you, to meet you. And we're invited not only to be spectators, but to be participants, to start letting you transform our lives in order for you to obey you. And that goes in different aspects of our lives, like in our missionary life, in our parenting life, in our single life, in our being sons and daughters, in everything. How does it look like to listen to you, Father? Please work in our hearts as we let this truth sink and take roots. In your name we pray. Amen.